Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the front three on today's show. There's plenty to come up. We've seen all the weekend's football. And to join me, two guys uh, from across the Atlantic, Nico Morales, good to have you. Thanks for having me. Which local shopping center are you in? Me. I am in no local shopping center. I think that is the other fantastic person that we have on the podcast, Kristen Hennage. Chris, whereabouts in New York? You're You're in Manhattan. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and which shopping centre are you in? One of the many. And and what's the weather like? Dark. <laughs> that glaucoma's going well. Anyway, uh, let's go down the Premier League. And the best place to start does seem to be the big clash of the weekend uh, it was the late kickoff on saturday and it was actually a really entertaining game nico uh spurs i mean a lot of people uh, me included predicted that it would be much closer than it was and i think it was naive uh maybe to say that uh, looking back because uh, actually this was a combination where uh spurs looked off it from the very beginning and uh, that city team as soon as they did score realized there was a lot more for the taking here yeah, I think I don't know. I think the the scoreline is a little bit generous towards towards Manchester City and really? how they played. Not that they played poorly. I just think you know, given obviously, I expressed how I feel Manchester City should be attacked, and and it's been relatively successful um, in previous games this season. And obviously, that wasn't the case for Tottenham. But I think this is a game, and, and Chris, I think, wrote something on on Aderson as well, um, or was much more in depth than than I ever was, but. This is a game I think where where we can point to maybe down the line, and, and it's another moment in Guardiola's career where I think he's taken an element of the game, how the game is played, and, and looked at it a little bit differently, or had a player that could um, that could perform in a way that that's a little bit different. And it's an interesting juxtaposition between because obviously the the news and and sort of the media and fans, the, the fans that we interact with, um, have been really having a conversation about goalkeepers the past couple of weeks and, and the value of, of goalkeepers. And I think this is a game where Aderson pretty much won the game. He, he should be managed, man of the match in, you know, in and of himself because of the really? pro- performance he had because of the effect that he had on the game, because Spurs high pressing was in my opinion, the right move. And I think they, they did as much as they could, but as I highlighted, highlighted on Twitter, and I think a, a bunch of other people have as well through some elements of video, when you have a goalkeeper that can deliver a pass, not only that accurately, but that quickly to another player, you're performing an action, uh, like a maybe 20, 30-yard passing action, exceptionally quickly. And when you have a team that's squeezing up the pitch and, and trying to make things exceptionally difficult for a team that has the ability to play out, that's not really a situation that you're going to encounter uh, the, like uh, very often. And I think... You know, there was a. I watched the Chelsea Southampton game as well, and, and they really pressed Chelsea because they understand that Thibaut Courtois isn't super proficient with his feet. He's not bad with his feet, but he's not a player that, that has a great deal of experience doing that. And I think there are elements of the modern game where a bunch of teams can say, "Hey, look, if your goalkeeper isn't amazing with it with with his feet, then we can squeeze the pitch. We can make it difficult for a team of a better quality, of a better ball playing quality, um, to impose themselves on the game. Because if they never 
get the chance to, to get going, if they never get the chance to start their attack, um, then I think that's that's really the best way to do it. But with someone like Aderson who is able to pick out such precise passes so quickly and so consistently, that's like a game-breaking thing because you can't press the goalkeeper when, when it's off a goal kicker in a situational in a high pressing sort of situational type of type of deal. And, and there's no answer to that because like I said, you can't press the goalkeeper. So I, I was really impressed with that. And I, and I honestly, like, I, like I said, I wrote the preview for sort of in, in favor of Spurs and I didn't think they were necessarily going to win, but I think they were, they were the team to best challenge them. Um, and given the fact that Manchester City obviously have this tool now, um, that Aderson is such a special I think he, part I think he's of the more team. Respectful than that. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, you know, given the fact that they have that ability, it, it's going to be difficult to see what teams do against this Manchester City team because, as Dave alluded to, there have been a number of teams who have tried to sit deep and be compact and frustrate Manchester City in that way. And it's, while it's been close, it hasn't worked. And then, you know, more people have been saying, you know, this is the way to go. Try to make Manchester City do what they don't want to do, which is play out of certain situations and isolate certain players. And I maintain that there's more things that they could have done by isolating maybe Mangala and, and some other weaker passers. But when you have a, a goalkeeper that's able to put in that type of performance with, you know, passing distribution, it's very difficult to see past it what, you know, the possibilities are for this Manchester City. Of course, of course it's obviously also about then you can intercept those passes. You can um, have people who are willing to battle for those. And I understand that that can't be covered all over the pitch. And maybe if even one of them connects, that's a good thing. Um, but it didn't seem, Chris, like Spurs had the game plan. Um, and, and maybe, you know, maybe because it's difficult to get a game plan together, but it didn't seem like they had the game plan to be able to even challenge Man City in this game, let alone uh, compete. No, and I, and I think part of that is because they were really stuck between a rock and a hard place because when they tried to press, as, as Nico explained there quite articulately, Edison played through the press. When they sat deep, they were cut open. Um, I think what you're seeing realistically, it's funny that, that Guardiola called them the Harry Kane team. I think it's more now fitting to call them the Toby Alderweireld team because he is very important to, to how they play football. And I think while a team like Man City or, or maybe even Man United has a bit more depth and, and can stretch itself, I think Tottenham at this precise moment, they really do have to start building the back end of the ship um, because when they miss one of their, their starters like Alderweireld, like Kane, you could argue, um, it, it really has a, a much more sizable impact on them than I think, um, say, City or, or United feel. And, and yes, maybe part of that is down to, to tactics as well, but I think that there is a something to be said for the, the lack of depth that, that Spurs are having to work with at this precise moment. Yeah, um, it certainly does open up a bit of a gap at the top of the Premier League. Manchester United obviously also getting their victory in there. Romelu Lukaku uh, being part of that. And of course, you can head over to uh, Statman Dave's uh, channel to go see all the latest on that. I don't want to take away from uh, what Stave is doing over there. Um some excellent work and excellent analysis of Manchester United and all the tactics and everything that went on over the weekend. Well worth a look. Um, elsewhere in the league, though, uh, Nico, it was a satisfying if sort of maybe um, not casual, but you know, a performance that Liverpool fans maybe have come to expect from um, from the guys at, at Liverpool. They just pretty much outplayed Bournemouth in every error of the park but I guess the caveat for me is I know there's this great run and Liverpool have got you know so many clean cheats in so many games and are actually rivaling Manchester United in terms of a defensive record um, I think over the last 16 games um, but Bournemouth didn't do them didn't do uh, themselves any favours um, but I guess that's kind of what Klopp bets on isn't it when he plays this sort of pressing football and high pressure uh, take them high up the pitch you, you sort of bet that the opposition are going to struggle and that they are going to panic to some extent I think that's true but I, I think what we're seeing right now is and I'm curious to sort of get your opinion on on this um is is really an evolution that I think is necessary for Liverpool Football Club with the way that they approach uh teams because obviously 
when Jurgen Klopp came in, I think that the general sort of narrative surrounding the the Liverpool situation was, especially under Jurgen Klopp, was that they were very proficient against some of the better teams. They could be compact, they could be aggressive pressing when they needed to be but they were very secure and so they won maybe a, a lot of the surprise games against the top six and teams that they really could take a scout from but they struggled against some of the the lower league teams because of the way that they played and I think the evolution is coming from a change in, in Klopp's tactics but it's something that it might be affecting those results against the top six as well because as I mentioned on the podcast you know the way that he creates space the way that he creates transition in these kind of games is that obviously you can't force a team to open themselves up, But if you trick them into doing that, then you can create transition. And a team that has better players in transition like Liverpool do, a team that has players like Mohamed Salah and Philippe Coutinho and, and, and uh, Sadio Mane are going to thrive in those situations. And when they open up the space between their midfield and their defense and teams see that as a weakness and it's something that the majority of the time Liverpool can capitalize on by, by you know compressing really quickly and then winning the ball back and then going forward. I think this is where Liverpool are starting to put more and more and more points together because of how they've changed that. Now, as a strategy against teams that are going to expose that and maybe exploit that sort of um, presented weakness a little bit quicker than, than a Bournemouth or something like that, I think that's where maybe the approach needs to be a little bit more tailored um, for Liverpool. But if Liverpool want to consistently, which they haven't been uh, for a while, but are starting to be, but if Liverpool want to consistently be part of the top four, I think this is the this is exactly the strategy that they need to enact. And I think given all that we've said and all that I've, maybe I've specifically said about Jurgen Klopp, I think this is the right direction for Liverpool. And and it's going, I, you know, we, we've, we've talked about criticisms and all that, but I, 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 at the end of the day, I think this is, this is where he wanted to go and intended to go. Yeah. I mean, Chris, part of it is, and I think Mohamed Salazar may be a good example of it. Um, the example of, people knowing the potential of Salah, people seeing the potential of Salah, and at times accusing Klopp of being a little bit of a crude manager in the way that he uses players. But you can pick up pretty much, I'd say, any of that front line, actually, that played on the weekend um, uh, and and see where there's an element of Klopp that's improved them. Um, Salah, it almost seems a little obvious in the goal scoring. Um, and that, I mean, I think he's also changed his... He's, changed in the way that it doesn't seem as if they're quite not expansive but um he's not quite as up and down uh in this or as open maybe as roma were uh when he played for roma i think he's definitely almost um a bit more of a complete final third player now than he was for roma when some of his decision making was maybe questionable at times um coutinho has pushed deeper that but then has also been able to come forward and combine with a slightly improved if maybe less prolific looking Firmino um, and then you know you got whoever else in there Adam Lallana who's also coming back from an injury it, it, it might look crude maybe in analysis but there's a lot of work behind the scenes that I think makes that Liverpool team feel to some extent unstoppable um, when when they're in their stride yeah I, th- I think the, there's two elements that stick out to me I think the first one is the, the motivational aspect of Klopp, which has been detailed in, in numerous pieces before. I think the other thing is they seem a bit more efficient as an attacking line. They don't Definitely seem not. to me... I think it's something like 45 goals, or maybe might even be 50 goals amongst the, the front four of Liverpool that under Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, and, and I think I think it doesn't just uh, present itself in the goal tally. I think it, you look at the way they produce goals as well, the build-ups. There, there's very rarely a wasted pass or something that feels as if someone's been stifled. It's all It all clicks into place very seamlessly. And I think that is partly down to him and, and the way that he orchestrates his attacking teams. Now, I think what helped them slightly against Bournemouth, and look, if... if Mane passes against Everton we're, we're talking about this is a fabulous run of, of results I think what really helped them with Bournemouth is Bournemouth were very disjointed um, I think they played with a back three at some point and the, the space between them was frightening um, and I think at the same time that doesn't take away anything from from what Salah and, and those around him were doing I just think that Bournemouth and, and Eddie Howe were both very naive in the way they approached this game and I think that's the problem is that Perhaps in the past you could get away with being a little bit naive against a Liverpool side, probably pre-Klopp, um, a little bit less so with with Rodgers when you had Suarez there. But you could, you could, you could sort of just pack in deep 
and and not have too much to worry about. But I think this team is is a lot smarter in the way it attacks, um, and it's easy to reduce it to to you know counter attacking or, or whatever. But I think there is more to it than that. I think there's as I said, I think there's an efficiency to the way they pr- produce moves and the way they build attacks. And now they have the individual quality that I think supplements the group as a whole. But when it recalls for a moment like Salah's goal, where he just very much picks up the ball and does it all himself, they have that potential in them now that I didn't see maybe, uh, you know, a year or two ago. Yeah, some people uh, accuse me of being a little less maybe um, positive about Liverpool, but I I mean, I guess there's more progress to be made. Um, Although, you know, there is also progress being made in that I think Klopp, it should be moving towards that final stage of getting the players in that he wants and getting the final few players who maybe he's had to use in the interim or well, it's very long interim now, such as Daniel Sturridge, etc. Um, to a certain point, uh, let's see if that continues. Daniel Sturridge, sadly, despite being somewhat of a Liverpool legend now uh, through taking Liverpool so close to the title and playing alongside so many great players, maybe spanning, uh, you know, between the 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 post Benitez era, if you like, um, when it was the, the most exciting team Liverpool have fielded in quite some time. Um, sadly, it might be on his way in January because he will want to find himself on the plane with England come he, uh, the, the World Cup and the visit to Russia. So let's see uh, if he can get down to that. Um, Nico, any, any thoughts on uh, the Chelsea game over the weekend? Because obviously, uh, you know, there's... There's actually quite a lot of politics going on at Chelsea. I think very rarely, though, do we cover what's actually going on on the pitch. And the only thing that separated them from Southampton was a one uh, was one goal from Marcus Alonso. Um, and, you know, Dave, Statman Dave said it to me beforehand. He knew that they were going to be a threat. But it, do you think they're posing enough of, of a threat without Morata up front and Hazard as that combination? Or is, is Hazard doing enough as that false nine-ish kind of leading the line but uh, allowing others to come in? I think from in terms of analyzing Hazard, I, I think that's this is the best I've seen him play in quite a while because I'm I've been really impressed with his performances like off the ball specifically. I think that's if anyone has a criticism of Hazard over the past couple of years, it's it's his inability sometimes to affect a game when he's been marked out of it. And obviously that that came to fruition against Manchester United when he was specifically marked out of the game and, and he couldn't do much at all. Um, but he's done more this season to be more of a, a threat off the ball to influence the the opposition's back line. Um, but in terms of, of talking about the the Southampton game in specific, you know, you just have to feel for for that club because they, I think. <laughs> given the fact that they're what, like 12th or 14th or something in the table, they're an incredibly gifted group of players. And I think a couple of years from now, when some of those guys have moved on to bigger and better things, no respect to, no disrespect to, to Southampton, but when, when some of those guys have moved on, we'll probably look at that Southampton team and say, wow, they were all on the, on the same team at the same time. And they didn't do very much more than, than achieving a, a, what is it? A league cup final against Manchester United, which they, undeservedly lost um but it's interesting they, they enacted a, i think a perfect plan to sort of try to um go for chelsea because like maybe uh it's a microcosm of, of sort of the spurs and and uh manchester city game i think if you tried in the modern era if you try to sit back against these teams that can open you up six different ways across and that's just a recipe for sort of taking your defeat laying down you might as well try to compact the space try to high press and and it almost worked against chelsea there was a there was a few good opportunities for southampton in the first in the first half like i said given courtois inability with his feet but um you know they were able to create enough Chelsea were able to create enough opportunities for themselves to, to finish and they've made their back on they've made their buck over the over the past year um on some incredible finishing especially from Marcus Alonso from free kicks and from crazy shots and stuff like that so I, I feel for Southampton but I I really kind of like where this Chelsea team is going in terms of like Champions League ability Chris I guess as a, a journalist yourself you're going to hear quite a lot about uh and, and also uh, as a, a football scout I think you're going to hear quite a lot about transfers I guess something I'm kind of sick of reading as a Liverpool uh follower and fan is Liverpool are are still pursuing Virgil van Dijk but then sh- there are people who are getting annoyed or maybe want to shut down the, the talk about Coutinho leaving and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain did a very nice thing on the weekend where he sort of stepped in when Coutinho was slightly embarrassed by the situation, couldn't quite um, 
you know, bat away the question of, are you going to be here until the end of the season? A perfectly sort of legitimate question, some people would say, um, but one that maybe some Liverpool fans believe that was out there purely to destabilise or to take away from what was a nice performance from him. Um, do you think there's an element of uh, double standards there at Liverpool at the moment? Because I certainly feel there is, and I, I you know, I feel very close to the club, but feel like they've they're now just paving the way and trying to smooth the transition away, not only for Coutinho but also for, also for themselves. And I, I don't know, there's something that I don't like about it as a fan. Um, I, th- I think that's a good question. I think ultimately, what a football club in their position has to do is almost hedge its bets. Um, I think they're self-aware enough to know that there's a chance Barcelona come in with another renewed bid. And I think you have to also be conscious, not just of what the player may want, but how you will appear during that scenario. So if you make some impassioned stand and say, we won't be selling him for any price, that paints you into a corner. And I think Liverpool know that if they were to receive a bid that in the region of what was rumoured, that 130 million mark, they'd have to seriously consider it because they could invest that in a player that could arguably replicate or even have a greater influence on the team, not necessarily an attacker, perhaps a centre-back, perhaps a goalkeeper, which, whichever position Klopp deems most important. And I think for that reason, Liverpool are not encouraging the, uh, the sale of, of Coutinho, but I do think they're not ruling it out. And I think that's the difficult uh, thing for fans to take sometimes is that your football club does think a little bit like a business in that sense and that players uh, can quickly become asset management. And, and that's perhaps not romantic enough for football fans or not what they want to hear. But I think you have to look at it from that pragmatic standpoint. And, and ultimately, I think that's what, what Liverpool are doing and, and you know more power to them in that sense. Mm. Slightly frustrating, uh, but I guess at the same time, let's see what happens. Uh, We'll be interested to see where Liverpool take this and how far they manage to uh, take the Liverpool faithful. Maybe Naby Keita next summer when Coutinho is on his way out will help to placate that a little. Uh, But let's see. We'll see. Um, Anything else you guys want to cover before we go international on this one? No, great. I think there was. There was. Was there anything I'd, I'd else? I'd be curious. The I'd be curious to, to hear to hear Chris's words on on. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Of, we, we should we should have spoken about Newcastle. Yeah, uh, Newcastle are definitely an interesting team, uh, Chris, in the Premier League at the moment. I mean, it, it feels as if they are the almost ifs every week. Uh, you know, I know that being beaten three one or four one or whatever is is the way it goes, but there's that glint of hope every week. And uh, this weekend, it was only losing one nil to Arsenal. Um, it seems, and I don't know if this is true. Maybe you, maybe you can uh, update me on this. As if Rafa's doing everything in his power to uh, keep Liverpool, uh, keep Newcastle in a decent position. Um, but is it, is it, is it enough? I guess in the long term, and is it really just now waiting for a takeover? I think it is waiting for a takeover, or at least um, confirmation that there'll be a set figure to spend in January because Amanda Stavely could um, agree a deal in principle and then say, okay, we will, the club will subsequently invest X in January and that will be added or deducted from the, the final price. I'm not entirely sure on the specifics, but I know it's possible because Man City did it prior to their um, changeover from Taxi Shinawat to the, the current ownership. In terms of Benitez, I think he's used um, uh, uh, an analogy before about a short blanket um, in that it will sometimes cover your feet, but you know, leave you, your chest exposed, uh, vice versa. And I think that's the predicament he's in at the minute. And that's not to absolve him of blame. I think there are some decisions I, I don't necessarily agree with. I'd like to see Alexander Mitrovic more involved, for example. I'd prefer to see Chancellor Mbemba instead of Javi Manquillo. Um, but I do think at this point, he, he's whenever he's picking plays, it tends to be the subs that change the game. Matt Ritchie, I thought, was a, a much better in, involved. I think Jacob Murphy is having a, a really good sort of upturn in form, and unfortunately amid what is pretty dire form for the rest of the team. Um, but I think for him, he's, he's trying to get to, to January and, and just strengthen because it, it's not for lack of effort, I think, that Newcastle are, are losing. I think it is. It's just that moment of quality. And I look at someone like Palace who... 
you know, all this great stuff is being written about Hodgson and what he's doing. I think you look at that squad and you've got Zaha, who's worth anywhere between 35 to 50 million, depending on what you read. Benteke, who cost over 25. Townsend, who cost over 10, is an England international. Loftus-Cheek, who, credit to Palace, they did really well to get him on loan because he has broken out this season. Kabai, who's a French international. Um, that's a good nucleus of a squad that fits the manager perfectly. And I think you could argue that's probably a more damning indictment of Mike Ashley in Newcastle, that their manager's been in place for what is it 18 months now maybe a little bit longer um and he still hasn't been granted i would argue the correct tools to build a premier league squad that's the key difference um he's 15 million in the black if you look at his entire tenure in terms of what he spent and sold and he's the only manager um i think of the the sums i did the other day that's that's in the black in that bottom half the rest in, are, are in the red one way or another and and so i find it a little bit confusing when his tractors say, well, you know, he's wasted money on Diame and Manquillo and Hosolu. I'd love to see who these people would be buying with that kind of money because it is it is real chicken scratch in today's market. And that's the difficulty is that five, ten million, yes, you know, 24 months ago, that maybe gets you a decent player. But Benitez has said himself, it, it really doesn't. You know, it's it's. I think he said something like it's, it's 10 million for a striker that can kick forward, 15 for one that can kick forward and backward. It, it it's very much in that wheelhouse that prices have shot up, and and Newcastle haven't caught up with that in relation to their own budgets and standards. Yeah, certainly it does make it tricky, but at the same time, it must be a very exciting time as a Newcastle fan. Right? I mean, there is that anticipation of a takeover. I guess the only issue is that it's been. Is it, it's been mooted before hasn't happened yeah I mean I think that's the difficulty is that the, any excitement of, of the possible takeover is, is almost dimmed slightly by the current predicament because it would be just like Newcastle to get a new owner in maybe spend a bit in January and still you know go down on the last day of the season the, the, the good thing is Benitez had what was it two months and, and managed to fall last time by the skin of his teeth he's got potentially five five or six months now with some I would say winnable games at home Jamal LaSalle's back in the team which which I don't think can be understated he really is a huge unifier for that team and, and someone that holds a lot of the team together and so yeah the, the, there's positives there if you look hard enough I think the frustration for fans stems from the fact that this is so much more difficult than it needed to be and that's the problem with, with Mike Ashley. Is he, he's willing to take that gamble and, and you know risk the fact that they could finish 17th or they could finish 18th, which is what they did a, f- a few years ago when, when Sunderland stayed up at uh, Newcastle's expense. And, and that's the problem. Is we, I think, speaking as a fan for a second, we feel as if we don't need to take that risk anymore. We realise what taking that risk does. It, it sees you playing Burton away from home you know, a few months later. And, and that's the, the frustrations. It feels that lessons aren't learned. Yeah, that, that frustration, I guess, yeah, that frustration may not last forever, though. And think of it this way, Chris. Soon you could be signing Rubinio. Or the equivalent. <laughs> that would be I mean, nice. you, you know what I mean? The, the equivalent of when uh, Shinawatra uh, got taken out of uh, Man City and after all paying all that, uh, I guess, sort of paying that time that he got there, Rubinio. Um, and, well, the the rest is history. He didn't win the league with them. Um, but they did put down a good marker, and that's all that mattered. And now mm. look at where City are. Um, you know, did um, did either of you read Angel Rangel's interview in the, the Independent? Not read it yet. Do you, is it, is I, it I read you? some of it. I think it's quite good. I, I think yeah, exactly. I, I really would. There. What leapt out to you? Um, I think his honesty first and foremost, because it, it, it's very easy in that predicament when you're. I think you can class him as a club stalwart at this stage in his career yeah. to be someone that doubles down and and you know protects the ranks and all this. But I think no, I think I thought he was very illuminating, very willing to call a spade a spade. Um, obviously, he's very settled in Swansea, and the club means a lot to him. And I think that comes across in in what he says and how he says it. Um, and the fact that he was kind of willing to admit that the Swansea way had sort of disappeared from the club in recent years, um, 
it uh, I think I think yeah it, it highlighted something that maybe some of us had thought but but not been able to to connect together with the dots and it's it is a shame because Swansea were one of the the better run clubs whereas in recent years I think they've lost that stability and structure and that's what puts them in the predicament that they're in now I have a, mm-hmm. I have a question for for the both of you just sort of in that realm of of um of questioning, I guess, with the and hell ren hell piece, um, which is something that I think everybody should go and read. It's like Chris said, it's illuminating. Um, but I think I was as I sort of came, I didn't, I haven't read all of it yet. But I, I when I did stop reading it and then sort of came away with it, and I was kind of thinking it over. Um, I had just recently read something about sort of the different analytical rankings of different Premier League teams and sort of their underlying numbers. And it sort of popped out to me about, especially this season with, you know, expected goals being the most mainstream now, uh, deep metric that people use and it not really having a home yet and people not necessarily understanding it or how to use it and, and sort of, I was thinking, you know, basically the the final thought there was it doesn't really have a home or or specific usage yet. I think in in really the mainstream, it's kind of struggling to find that. And the the analytics rankings that I that I read were were talking about Newcastle and how they've suffered really from some bad luck in in terms of their results. And I think the person who wrote it, which I think was Mike Goodman, was was talking about, you know his fanship as an as an Everton supporter um, in okay. seasons past talked about <laughs> talked about sort of the the outside effects that can start to um weigh on a club in in terms of when they have like a bad run of results and you know th- even if things aren't as bad as the results lead on the, the negative coverage in the pr- in the media the never- negative coverage in the press and and sort of the the aura around a club can very much be dictated by the people that that cover it and and the fans reaction to that coverage and all those sorts of things and i just I think, wonder I think that can be that can be so, I, that can be open to who the manager is or these kind of things because you also get oh, managers yeah, who almost completely shut themselves away i mean you can see the difference in i was listening to the rambles 12 days of christmas and they were talking about one christmas leicester city were bottom of the Premier League next city next season they were top of the Premier League and, and a huge part of that I think is the approach um, and you know it, yeah. it's amazing what a short that short space of time changed yeah and and I guess my my question to you two would be because of sort of the the subjective nature of how things are covered and maybe how fans react to that and now maybe there's a more mainstream acceptance of these deeper metrics I'm obviously I'm not going to disagree with what Chris said about Newcastle but the underlying numbers for that that team leads, leads us to believe that these results will not continue and they've suffered a little bit more than they should have do you think given the more mainstream acceptance of numbers that can lead us to different conclusions than the results will maybe one day start to change how those factors how those what people call soft factors affect the aura around the club and uh, how fans think, and maybe it it stops, you know, a bad performance or or it changes a result because of how people accept, you know, the 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 performance of their team as opposed to the result. It's certainly, yeah, I mean, yes. it certainly is an interesting one, Chris, isn't it? I mean, you, Newcastle are probably a prime example of this, aren't they? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yep, I think looking at some of their results, um, there's only one game where I think really they've been totally outclassed, and that was against Manchester United. Um, and I think you look at the, the Arsenal game, again, they kept it tight. The Everton game, 
for my money, if, if Darlow doesn't drop that ball, it, it stays nil-nil at worst. Um, there was a chance Everton had in the second half from Ashley Williams that was well saved by Darlow. But that spillage, which again, it's a mistake and you don't want to lump it on the player. But I'm sure there's part of Benitez is, is sitting there saying, you know, I told you in the summer we needed a new goalkeeper. Um, he tried to shift Darlow out to Middlesbrough for five million. So a lot of what he said in the summer has been vindicated over these months, and I, and I certainly don't think he's uh, certainly don't think he's throwing games by any stretch. But I imagine there's a sense of frustration for him that what he informed the club is now coming to pass. I, I think they've been a, a shade unlucky. There's definitely been some games. I mean, the Bournemouth game at home, they went one nil up, and it was ruled out for offside, and there was not a chance in in. Uh, in Heller was offside which again you look at that Bournemouth end up getting the 1-0 win that takes the pressure off them a bit keeps the pressure further on Newcastle and I'm always reminded of Allardyce saying that these things do not even themselves out and it's a concern because these these decisions these results they do they mount up and and you know there's there's a hope that eventually luck will will come to pass because you look uh, at just silly things like the last time Newcastle played with a man advantage in the Premier League. It was 2014. They haven't had a man sent off against them since 2014. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I see the same for Arsenal, right? I mean, uh, you know, the, the mentality of the club, the coverage, definitely, especially, is, I think it's also how outward-looking the fans are and how much they care about what other fans think as well, right? Or how they deal with that at times. Because... Arsenal's a classic club and this again maybe you can make this argument about Arsenal fans I, yeah, I, almost makes them more yeah, outward looking because they suddenly care about their image I think that's yeah. the frustration for, for Newcastle fans at this point is you know the, the, there's almost a confusion as to why they're not on Rafa Benitez's back and yet when they have been on Benitez's back like Alan Pardew who was, who was in genuinely dire form and the team were playing poorly and they were soundly and rightly being beaten they were told that they shouldn't hound a manager out and that the club needs stability. And well, I think that's I mean, the, the good thing is that, I mean, Chris, they don't think a good football man out of the club. You well, silly. That's the, thi- that's the thing. I, I, th- I think they almost feel damned if they do, damned if they don't. And, and this is where we have to be careful about lecturing football fans. Um, because, yeah, I, I do. I think they've certainly had some bad luck. I can think of, of a few. I mean, there was the Huddersfield game early in the season where uh, there was an almost identical tackle to the one that Edison and uh, Marnie got involved in that wasn't given as a red card. In fact, I don't even think it was even a yellow card um, at the time. And you look at, you know, an instance like that, you look at um, Harry Kane's tackle on the first day that could have been a red card. As I said, the goal against Bournemouth. And it, it does. It, I think it certainly breeds a, a victim complex in, in clubs and fans and and that's where you know it starts to feel like well it doesn't really matter how we play because the decisions aren't going for us and and then we get mired in the intangibles of you know well I mean I said that Sam Allardyce was incredibly lucky last week um, against Newcastle and he was and a lot of the people who are big fans of Sam Allardyce said well you know they work hard so they get lucky that's so unquantifiable that it makes it a moot point because you can't really prove one or the other whether that's true. Not yet, anyway. Um, I mean, you know, there's uh, it's it's also whether you whether the fans feel like there's hard work or not, and whether they see the right kind of hard work, I guess, for those fans. Uh, Nico, I'll give you the final word because you were going to talk about one thing on that. Yeah, I was just going to say I think Arsenal is a. It's sort of it's interesting because this is a new age of it's a new age of information. I don't think people. Um, specifically pundits kind of pay or pay yeah pay enough respect to, to that uh, to that remark because you you talked about Arsenal and and I agree the coverage of Arsenal has been incredibly tired over the past couple of years because it's pretty much the same thing that's said about them every season and I think Arsenal fans very much buy into that and I think the laziness and, and this comes from me as well because I could do more to, to, to maybe dispel that but I think like I said, it's a new age of information. And I think right now, considering where the club is going, where Arsenal is going, it's really the first club in the modern era, in the social media era, in these, you know, this new access of all these types of information that we're seeing a major shift in power. And I think we have to, we have to understand and accept that with all this new information, the transition and of, and, and like you mentioned, 
those fans deeply care about what other fans think of them. And 10, 15 years ago, that, that wasn't the case. Arsenal wasn't looked upon as how it, how it is now. But given the fact that there are all these extra measures as to how we look at things, extra measures as how we can talk to and communicate and, um, and look at other fans, there are all these extra yeah. measures in, in, in there. And I think that's not something that maybe we look at well enough and maybe we can't understand it right now because we're in the middle of it and it's much easier to analyze something in hindsight but i think it's something yeah. that we definitely need to acknowledge that's also a little bit of a cop-out i think on most people's parts uh when they say it, it's difficult to analyze because we're in it um uh, sure um, <laughs> all right i'm sorry no no i'm not i'm not saying i'm not saying you're saying that i do think uh there's a lot of people that sort of therefore take the debate just sort of shut the debate down because they uh, they go, well, we're in it. Let's see what happens when we get out of it. And you're a bit like, yeah, but that's because you really want to just hide the effects of all the shit that you're doing. Um, I'm not saying that's what you're saying. Uh, Chris, one very simple question from Elliot here. Uh, it says, uh, should Mark Hughes be sacked? Yes. Great. Thank you, Chris. Um, and then uh, there's a great point by made by Matt brownie cake here he says what happens to linesmen in these recent weeks not seeing offsides uh players fouls penalties etc i'm not saying that ain't good uh but maybe we need more so they are all fresh for the uh day's work like good point matt i think there was a point in the liverpool game on the weekend where Firmino was offside i think there have been a number of incidents in recent weeks where maybe the linesman hasn't been able to keep up with the play Maybe it's the argument for the sixth man on the sidelines. Maybe more, maybe less. Um, or maybe more video refereeing. Um, someone who shouldn't be allowed near a camera for a while is Antoine Griezmann, Chris. Um, he He's made... He's just done something... He's done something ridiculously stupid to do. Um, and... It, the the terrible thing would be to say he didn't mean it in a racist way and therefore it is not bad. Um, and even therefore, because he didn't mean it in a racist way, it's funny because it isn't. Um, he, he tweeted a picture of himself blacked up as a Harlem Globetrotter. Uh, and then when was criticized for the tweet, then said um, re- um, words to the effect of relax. It's a tribute um, and it's it's hard to cover because Nico and I were talking about this beforehand and we were saying, Chris, you know, not everyone does know or understand the effects of these things. Ignorance isn't in, in any way um, a defense in this. Um, it's almost hard to know how to cover it because you don't want to be too damning of a man who clearly did not know those effects what it maybe shows is is a naivety with which maybe a lot of people in society are operating right now. And I imagine even in covering it, we're sort of buying into elements of that naivety. Yeah, I, th- I think what, what's important to, to distinguish here is, is first and foremost is that, yeah, I think there's a naivety because from what I have been able to observe of Spanish culture and, and to a certain degree Italian culture as well they, the countries have very curious relationships with race um, as we talked about you and I last night the, the two fans I believe the Spanish fans who went to an F1 event um, and blacked up to look like Lewis Hamilton there was the Spanish basketball team that did a, a slantized gesture um, ahead of I believe it was the Olympics in Beijing um, those are, to me, are fairly prime examples of, of just the difficulty um, that these nations have in terms of understanding things. And that might sound very bizarre to, to us, you and I are speaking as, as Englishmen and Nico as, a, as a, an American. Yeah, it does, it does seem like an almost have... typically English or sort of uh, Western liberal outrage, uh, which you can sort of understand because of what they're trying to champion. Um, mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, there's the other side, I guess, you're going to get onto. And, and I, this is the thing, I think, to we have to be very careful with the words we use, and, and that is what will stop it being damning, is you can be racist in the moment and not be inherently racist. That's the, diff- that's the difference I think you need to, to really focus on here, is that the decision he made to do that 
it was naive and it was racist at the moment of, of him doing it because again it was defining someone by the way that they look at him in um, what I would constitute a negative way even if he saw it as a positive I don't then believe in the same breath that he views black people or the minorities or the races whatever in a, in a negative light and as if they are below him because he's best friends with Paul Pogba and this kind of thing and I appreciate that, that to a lot of people that is often a racist defense that some of my best friends are insert you know whichever uh, race they have offended I don't think though that he is of that group I think if anything he's made an ill-judged decision um, likely informed by the culture that he's been present to and I think this is one of those instances where again he hasn't meant it in a derogatory negative way so we can take this opportunity to educate and to help bring the conversation forward in a positive way because I think when you ostracize someone like this yeah. that is when you potentially push them towards being racist and that's the, the difference I think you need to, to really consider is that you can do something that is racist and not be racist at the same time that's a, a nuance that I think is sometimes lost when we try to define things and I wish there was a, a better choice of words for it but define things in very black and white uh, polarizing ways between yeah, terrible choice yes of words. or no uh, yeah um, yeah uh, it's, it's definitely true although uh, then I guess Chris uh, the, the, the point is that you can then be racist in reacting to it um, which it seems there are many people out there who indeed have been racist in reacting to it um, and also racist in defending the action because you don't seem to understand um, why that might upset some people uh, even though you aren't also a, a terrible racist person maybe in your own head I, I think also a thing that maybe we, we need to avoid here is, is assuming any sort of intention, because as Chris mentioned, we don't necessarily know um, Antoine Griezmann's intention. I think we would all like I don't, I don't to think, think he would have posted a, a massive football. smiling picture like that if he'd meant to upset. No, no yeah, and that's the thing. But I, like I said, I think the important thing here, especially with, you know, with, the re with some of the replies that we've received, given our, I think, generally cogent opinions um, between the four of us or between the five of us, um, on on the matter is is why something like blackface is and is is something that's racist. It's because you know blackface was used as a as a device to um, perpetuate a society where black people and people of color are oppressed. And regardless of whether you live in a time where blackface has never been used in that context, regardless of whether you know you live in a society or you live in a situation where you're privileged enough to have never faced any sort of degradation due to race religion or, or creed, whatever, um, that doesn't mean that certain things don't hold a weight because of what they inherently have garnered throughout history. It's as if someone, and it's not exactly the same thing, but is, you know, if you take a symbol that has garnered a, a sense of uh, bigot, bigoted views and, and hatred, then that image will always carry those things. And even if you intend to repurpose it, that's really not up to white cis males to do that. And I think the point here, and NPR did a really good, really good section on on something similar, which is like the word Jew, which in American language has garnered a, a derogatory connotation. And there was a, a Jewish journalist that they had on that talked about, and, and it's sort of similar to, to other sort of derogatory names and, and other things in, in, in um, specifically American culture. But he, he said it was sort of up to, you know, the, the people of the Jewish faith to reclaim that term and make it into something positive. And I think the responsibility, or not necessarily even the responsibility, but the action into how that evolves in our society is completely based on the actions of that group of people. And I think with something like blackface, it doesn't translate to a linguistic perspective. And I think given the fact that it has been used up until the 1980s on TVs uh, in America to perpetuate or portray black people and, and people of color in a way that was not complementary of their intelligence or, or anything good, then 
I, I think you there is no qualms of saying that that is something that ra- that that is racist. The difficulty with that is that I think there are people on the other side of the equation that are you know they don't want to be said that they're a racist because they don't have an issue with it. They don't want to automatically be deemed something that they don't think that they are because they have an, a specific opinion on something. I think the key here is educating people as to why it has such a large significance in our society in terms of the race relations that it is part of like what we need to do as I think people that are generally more informed. We need to educate people on why this is the way that it is and what meaning it has attached to it. It's, it's great coverage, at least from uh, this is my male's perspective. Um, let us know what you guys think. We'd certainly be interested to progress the conversation in some way. Uh, considering how many minorities uh, and, or how this uh, podcast might lack any minorities. Uh, and the conversation was had in a very serious way the other day, whether Nico counts as a minority. Um, Nico, you come to any good conclusions? I, ca- I can't, I can't derive any, anything. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep studying. We'll keep, uh, we'll keep, we'll keep at it deciding whether I am or not. <laughs> yep. Uh, that is that's very sweet um, let us know uh, do you think Nico is a minority on the podcast and don't say a minority of intelligence uh, that's that's not fair um, elsewhere uh, Real Madrid won against Gremio crowning them World Club Cup champions uh, in other news that no one cares about Star Wars is now out uh, anyone on the podcast seen that? I have oh yeah not yet. All right. Uh, spoilerless uh, coverage, Nico. Does it involve football? In no way, actually. I hadn't thought about that. You think but in no you, way would, you would genuinely think that in the future, a game which was global, there's no sport in Star Wars. No sport. They're the only sport in the new Star Wars, and this isn't really a spoiler, is like this Quidditch. weird type of Absolutely. horse racing or dog racing some sort of racing of animals but it's very similar point. to horse racing and dog but there's, racing. there's no so so, I mean, weird, but. yeah i mean i guess there is a little bit of sport there's that silly pod racing thing but you know there's there's no Gotta love pod racing come on now i guess being a jedi is kind of a sport maybe i don't know maybe if the universe is balanced you don't need maybe it's sort of a john lennon style kind of you know everyone's imagine there's no heaven blah 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 uh or at the same time, maybe George Lucas just didn't like, as they call it in America, soccer, um, and therefore didn't write any bloody sport into Star Wars. It's just unusual. Do you know what I mean? You'd think like Han Solo would be like a space American football fan or something. You know, he liked the he liked the Naboo cult cults. Do you know what I mean? Or something like that. The Senate. Pause. The Endor Bay Packers. <laughs> oh, it's, there's, there's one line every week, and then you, you're thinking, I don't know why they have Chris on the podcast. And then he says it, and you just go, there it is. Um, uh, elsewhere, though, uh, one of the forgotten Star Wars characters and angry bounty hunter, uh, Gattuso, was left to a terrible loss, uh, Nico, against Verona. Um, he's put a, a Star Wars fatwa out on at least a few of his players. It was a pretty horrific loss. And having watched this one live uh, from about the point where they went 2-0 down, uh, Milan just sort of knocked the ball around, not aimlessly, but when they then got near to goal were just so profligate. It, it was really unusual to watch, but there was very little in terms of... Uh, a a focus point in the side Um, and it it seemed as if they were just a team that were coasting yeah I mean it's strange given Milan are in an incredibly interesting situation because I think obviously they've been not where they wanted to be in the past couple of years and then last summer or or a year ago within the last year they received a major investment and I think a lot of us viewed that as okay Ace Milan are on the way back up. We'll see them in the Champions League in a few years. And that was sort of the narrative that we we bought. And now, yet again, I think given the insecurity, I think Chris pointed this out far before it ever happened, but um, 
you know, given the insecurity in their investment, given the insecurity from an managerial standpoint, I think it's a bit strange because it's a bit strange to have appointed Gattuso because none of the managerial stints that he has had have has ended in success. And so it's almost as if they sent out a text to all of their former players that have coaching badges and said, does anyone want to take charge of the team while we look for someone? And they didn't have someone lined up in, in, uh, in as a replacement for, for, <laughs> for, for the coach that has been sacked. And it's just, you would think that a, that a club that is so storied and even now has had, multi-million dollar investment would have some sort of contingency plan as to when they went a different direction in terms of the manager and and it just seems like like they gave him the 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 job because he's a he's an ac milan legend obviously i you know we all liked him as a player but as a manager i don't think he he stacks up nearly as well yeah it's certainly a different one isn't it chris i mean this milan team i've got some very talented young players in there it feels a little bit like he's just keeping a nest warm for someone else yeah, most definitely. And I think when you have the approach that Gattuso does, which is uh, very confrontational, very aggressive, you look at his spell at Crete, um, I think he was at Pisa where you know, everything I had read was, was of similar um, description. I don't know if players respond well to that because they kind of look at it, at least I would if I was a player, I will ride this out. You know, he'll be gone six months, eight months, whatever. Um and, and we'll be welcoming in a new manager. I think it's hard to inspire through that method specifically when, when you know that there's no longevity with the, with the coach in question. Yeah, certainly frustrating one. Uh, but then, you know, I guess elsewhere in Syria, Nico, it's getting pretty exciting, I guess. I mean, look at the damn table. Uh, let me let me try and bring this one up because actually I've been looking at it over the weekend and uh, Juventus now find themselves just one point off the top. Juve to me are incredibly interesting. Go on. I think they're they're, they're probably. I mean, I, obviously I've waxed lyrical about Napoli and everything that they've done, but and and they're still at the top of the table and they've done well with the replacement to Fauzi Gulam on the on the left hand side to sort of replace that. I think. As I've said before, I don't necessarily blame Mauricio Sarri because a lot of people have come out and said, oh, you know, this this bump in form and possibly the loss of a title because, you know, given Juventus's early season struggles, Napoli, since losing Goulam, have not taken the opportunity to capitalize or had the opportunity to do so because their play has been significantly decreased because of the loss of such a major player to the first eleven. And a lot of people have sort of come out and criticized uh, Saudi for not rotating in the first place. And they believe that's what sort of led to the to the ACL injury. And I think that's a difficult criticism because the majority of the players that we're talking about in, in such a complimentary context with Napoli were really only that way under Sari. He's made all of these players or he's gotten the best out of these players in a major way. And I think they lacked... Napoli lacked major major financial investment, and I don't put a lot on him for not being able to find, within the club's price range, a, a left-back that can fulfill the same duties. At the same time, I find Juventus incredibly fascinating because they've had their rough start, but um, I think Adam, a couple of weeks ago, when he had the, the the journalist on from Italian football TV spoke about some of the press conferences that Allegri has been uh, has been referencing in, in terms of what he believes um, is the right approach in terms of his management and he he talked about his philosophy being split in, into the two halves of the season and he thinks that it's more about the players understanding what he wants from them from a tactical perspective and and how they need to play with each other in different systems in the first half of the season really focusing more on the performances and then transitioning to the second half of the season focusing more on the results and I think that's what we're seeing with Juventus and why that's kind of why I have so little hope for Tottenham is because I think although we're seeing this year as a transitory period for the indomitable Juventus um, because of their loss of, of Bonucci, we're already seeing them pick up the pieces. They're only one point off the pace of Napoli, who were by far, in a, in a way, ahead of the race um, at the beginning of the, of the year. And despite maybe some lackluster performances in the early seasons of the Champions League, I think they're starting to pull that ship together. And this more attack-minded Juventus, um, which has scored the most goals in Serie A with 41, um, 
is starting to come to fruition and the ability to transition from a player that's as good as Bonucci to slotting in Benatia and using the same system but then using different systems sort of in a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-4-2 is I, th- I think it just speaks to Allegri's credit and year after year the more I watch this manager the more I'm impressed with what he's able to do um, given the departures given everything and and I'm just incredibly impressed. And incredibly impressive it is. They found themselves just one point off the top. Um, and yes, you did hear Nico say, can they just pull their shit together? Um, Thierry Henry has been crowned king of football in Nigeria, according to a number of the red tops in the UK, which is what makes me think that they've read a parody account. But no, uh, it does seem true after looking a little further into, uh, further into it. And the Mirror writes, uh, the former France international has accumulated an enormous fan base in Nigeria from his glory days with Arsenal. And he's been named Igwe in a fan event in Lagos. Um, some of the Red Tops claim in this makes him, or at some point he was, uh, yeah, here we go, donned Igwe, which means king of football on Sunday in front of thousands of adoring fans. Um, it's incredible how people uh, speak about web people when they travel. Um, if you could make one person king of football, this is the final question of the podcast, who would you make king of football? Uh, Chris, I think Allegri. we know your answer. Well, we obviously know my answer. I think he'd be a gracious, benevolent, omnipotent, and omniscient. Uh, I was going to say God, uh, but King, um, Nico, none other than the gentle giant Yaya Toure. It's it's a good shout. Uh, I don't know if he'd be the most gracious king, and I don't know if he'd be the most forward-thinking king. But I do like it. Chris? Chris? Um, this is a good question. My mind jumped to Pele originally, because, like, yeah. But then, mm, given that Mo Salah plays for Pharaohs, and he is the best, I mean, uh, yeah, that would make him wouldn't it? Uh, King of football. It's kind of like who would you want to send up in space, really, isn't it? You have to send one representative in football in space. Matt Ritchie. Uh, good shout. Um, he does have a magic hat, but sadly it's not a crown. Who would I want to send up? Um, let's say Johan Cruyff, because I think he's had the greatest influence as player and man. Chris, that's beautiful and very sweet. Um, that's a lovely way to finish the podcast. Let us know who your football king is. Uh, I've got to admit, I do think Romelu Lukaku is somewhat of an aspiring king in it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a good start. Um, it's been interesting this weekend to cover all the football and then come chat with you guys. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, is there anything you think you guys think I'm missing from Europe at the moment? Nothing, nothing jumps out to me spectacularly. Not particularly. I think we've covered the big headlines. Uh, but if you want to hear more of us, then you can hear us later in the week. Um, it's There are going to be some, I think there are going to be some more regular ones over Christmas, or at least uh, you'll get some, some bonus audio, I think, in that time. Uh, it's always lovely to bring the gang together. Um, and we look forward to chatting to you guys over Christmas. If you're getting anyone a brand new iPod or a brand new, do people still give iPods? Is iPod still a thing? Yeah, I think so. Uh, if you're if you're getting a brand new phone, or you're getting a brand new All right, something, Mr. iPhone X. Uh, sure. Uh, if you're getting a brand new something, make sure you preload it with a subscription, and that then you show us that subscription. Uh, we'd love to see how we're making your holidays better. Uh, because remember, it's all well and good giving an iPhone. It's even better to give an iPhone with a good podcast on it. People just don't they they don't know how you're changing their life until it's much much later. Um, anyway, Chris, it's been great to have you. Are you going to go shop now in the mall or are you off somewhere else? Subway? Uh, I'm going to go and see if I can find myself a tall boy. I, uh, I think if you go into the Chelsea area, you might be able to... Uh, a different thing. Uh, um, someone's been here before. Uh, anyway, uh, Nico, uh, same for you. What are you going to have for Christmas? What am I getting for Christmas? I think yeah. a, a big lump of coal. Unfortunately, been uh, been bad this year, so I think probably coal. Well, uh, fair enough. Uh, if you want to let us know what you guys are getting for, for Christmas, I think we're going to slip one more podcast in 
before Christmas and we'll probably cover all of our Christmas content on that. Uh, if not, and you can't get enough of your football fill, I would definitely recommend going to listen to the Football Ramble 12 Days of Christmas. There's some great analysis in there. There's some great memories in there. And there's just four genuinely nice guys sitting around talking about football. So go take a look at that. Um, let us know if you can find us uh, on Twitter at The Front Three. And we'll see you again real soon right here on TF3. Mom deserves the best. And there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 